curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Bird of the Year voting starts tomorrow, October the 1st. Only goes for a couple of weeks. It was a very, very proud moment uh, when the Great Warbler, uh, un uh, under my management, was Bird of the Year 2007, the third incarnation of the Bird of the Year. It's very hard to make that work again. I'm just quietly but confidently and still with all my heart supporting the grey warbler, the finest bird in New Zealand. It's endemic. It's just a, a marvellous creature. Our smallest bird, forget that rifleman. It just can't be bothered growing a tail. Grey warbler, the soldier of the air uh, and the most gorgeous, evocative song. Play it to somebody who's been overseas for years and they'll just... They'll have themselves a bit of a cry. I'll see if I can find it. Might play you a little bit. It's just not right under my nose at the moment. Never mind. John Depig and his letter to America coming up shortly, and then the inaugural uh, episode of Jesus make it stop the death throes of World War One. As on Sunday, the 11th of November. It was. It's a, it's a Sunday this year. Uh, what a propitious date. It's a hundred year, will have been a hundred years ago since the signing of Armistice. And on air uh, at that very, very time, if you'd taken into consideration the time zones, yeah, it would have been uh, that Sunday night at 11 p.m. or thereabouts that it was signed. The end of what a hellish conflict. A little bit later this hour, John DeVig is up next. Aha, I found it. Here it is. Grey Warbler. Beautiful. Bonus airliner in the background. <laughs> Just vote. Bird of the year. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Here he is, John DeVig, and his <laughs> letter from America, perenni yeah. perennially polarising. and Polarising? Very, very, is very polarising? Yes, it is. I know. I know. Yeah. I get the feedback. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's I... either get rid of that loudmouth disparaging, he ha just hates Trump, he's got this agenda. I, I hate Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, or <laughs> keep it up, John, you're tremendous. <laughs> There's no one in between. Well, that's exactly the way the country is right now. This yeah. week has been a rough week, baby. Yes. It's made me actually feel nauseous. <laughs> Yeah, some of it. Yeah, yeah. If you list, if you list, if you're like us, or and particularly me, and you'll watch all the stuff and watch the YouTube videos of the yeah. interviews. Kavanaugh, this is Kavanaugh, what we're talking about. Supreme Court and, nominee and Dr. Ford, uh, yeah. Christine Baisley Ford. Yeah, you know it's you know, and you there's watch no, the Republicans on either side. It no, doesn't matter what no, side you're on. No. It's just awful because yeah. one of them is either. Terribly mistaken <laughs> or an, an, an odious liar. Yeah, yeah. I can't... And, the, and it's because it's 
um, a historical claim, the evidence is going to be thin on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, look at it this way, okay? Dr. Christine yeah. Leslie Ford, yeah. you know, she came forward and she wanted an FBI investigation right off the bat before she even testified. Right. The Republicans refused. But they, the FBI doesn't have magical powers. I mean, they're quite good at what they do. But they, no, of course they, they don't. They don't have, have magical powers. No, but they do investigate this kind of stuff. Yeah. They investigate it. That's what yeah. they do. That's yeah. what that's their job. Yeah. You but know, they don't federal, have magical powers to investigate it. Federal, it's going to be a tough investigation. Well, okay. Okay. Well, if you, you know, I love the way you're putting this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. She said in the room were two people. Yeah. Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge. She wanted Mark Judge to be at the trial. Right. Republicans said no. No. Well, how the yeah, hell are you going to corroborate anything assholes. if you're not going to be... That's the Republicans being awful. Well, that's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's yeah. totally ridiculous. Now, before I'll, I'll, go, I'll go over this a little bit, but just as a preference, a couple of good things happened out of this, though. Okay. A couple of good things, you know, small, small pinpoint things, mm. but this is towards the end. So you have the, you know, you have the... Um, the interrogation, the committee, you know, and mm. and they, you know, and it was, I mean, a lot of a lot of Americans watched this. I mean, it was in every bar, it was in every airplane. I mean, people were watching this. Not quite Joe McCarthy trials, but up no, there. No, but it was, I mean, it's it peaked interest mm. on, on this. And you're right, you know, Dr. Christine Baisley Ford, she's a psychologist, she's an educated woman. She came forward and described in, in a pretty convincing detail what happened? What she, you know, what she claimed happened that Brett Kavanaugh jumped on her and tried to take her clothes off and and uh, turn the music up loud, locked the door, hand over the mouth, hand over the mouth. Okay. Now, on the other hand, and they had a woman in there. This is what cracks me up. They had a woman in there, uh, a prosecutor of sex crimes, interviewing Dr. Ford uh, because the Republican men felt that it would be, you know bad optics for 11 grumpy old white guys no, to be, yeah. you know, to be, yeah. But the thing was, you saw the woman in front and the 11 guys sitting behind, the, the picture optics were bad. Yeah. Okay, so she gets through her testimony. Then in the afternoon, Brett Kavanaugh's turn comes, and he comes out vim and vigor. I mean, he comes out firing. Now, and he came, comes out with, he sounded exactly like Trump. He, he put his shoulders back, and he was not having this, was he? No, he wasn't having it, but he, you know, Supreme Court judges are supposed to be bipartisan. Yeah. They're not supposed to be political. Oh, yeah, but he's saying that he's been falsely accused. No, 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 supposed no. To just he, say... no, no, no. He didn't just say that. Yeah. He said the Democratic senators falsely accused him and acted horribly. Oh, yeah. He said that it was a conspiracy against the 2016 election of Donald Trump. He said it was a conspiracy brought up by the Clintons. The goddamn Clintons got in this thing again. <laughs> they got nothing to do with it. So you see that. Yeah. He's thrown himself into bed with the Republicans. Totally. That, he and can't. To me, see, that to me disqualifies him to be a Supreme Court judge. The position your social politics has got into in the States now with uh, the events of this week, if he is a denied the Supreme Court um, appointment, they're... People are going to be outraged that the Democrats can do this. Yeah. And if he is appointed, there will be, it will be intolerable outrage that such an odious person could be for life at the Supreme Court. You, this but, is not going to end well. well. No, no, it's not. 
But either I, way, I just want to say, and one week for the investigation, just one week. One week, uh, man, that's a busy week. I'll tell you some other things about this. Yeah, you know. But before I get to that, just one word, one name: Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland. He was a judge that Obama had put forward yeah. to be in the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell said the greatest feat of his political career has been stopping that nomination for over a year. Mm. And the Republicans have the audacity to complain that the Repu that the Democrats are trying to stall this yeah. investigation, the audacity to claim that. But Well, Flake kind of came to the rescue, didn't he? He did. He did. He did. He was uh, a senator who said, said, oh, hang on, hang on. Let's, well, let's just is, wait for this a week. Is, this is the, the good little pinpricks here yeah. we got of what came out of this. Senator Jeff Flake is a Republican senator from Arizona, ultra-conservative, ultra-conservative. And he, you could tell he was, he was concerned about the process, about the process. Yeah. And so... You can be conservative and decent. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the way it turned out, in mm. a sense. So he, on the last day... He, his, his, everybody thought he might turn. There's 11 Republicans on the committee and 10 Democrats. Mm -hmm. So if you vote party lines, it's going to be 11 to 10. The Republicans are going to win. So, and what they vote on is to get the nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, to the Senate floor for the full vote. Mm. That's what they, that's the first vote. And everybody expected maybe Jeff Flake wasn't going to vote with the Republicans. But he did. On, on Friday morning, he put out a statement saying, I'm going to vote yes on Brett Kavanaugh. Then he's walking down the hallway in the morning to go to the meeting, gets in the senator's only lift to get to the meeting, and all of a sudden two women pop up. Yeah. And they, they, they just were very emotional. They harried him. Yeah. They, they harried him, and they are very emotional because both of them had been raped as young women. And, I mean, at one point, one of the women said, look at me, because he was looking down. Look at me when I'm speaking to you. Look at me. And they, and they put their case forward in very emotional terms. And you could tell Jeff was listening to it because he could have easily just pushed the button yeah. and closed the doors. But he, he listened to him. So then he goes up to the meeting and he gets together. When it comes time to vote, he gets, he gets up and walks out and, and gets Chris Coons, who's a Democratic senator, and they have a discussion because he's not, he's not happy with what's going on. He's not feeling good about it. So they discuss what they can do. And then Jeff Flake, which is great because now you've got a bipartisan, too, because Chris Coons came out later and said, Jeff, Jeff Flake is a friend of mine, but we are diametrically opposed politically. I don't agree with what he does. But they trusted each other enough to come up with a plan. Jeff Flake went back in, spoke to Grassley, the chairman, and said, I want to speak right now. And he said, I will vote to pass this onto the Senate floor but unless we get an FBI investigation in a week's delay, I will not vote on the Senate floor. And I have the backing of Lisa Murkowski from uh, Alaska in my corner and a couple others that he had. So all of a sudden, the Senate floor needs 50 votes. There's only 51 Republicans, and they were missing two or three. So they reluctantly had to say, okay, we're going to delay it. We have to delay it. And the White House reluctantly said, because the White House is the one that orders the FBI investigation. Now, you would think, okay, they're going to investigate. But listen to this. They've put restrictions on the investigation. There are three women that have come forward. They're only allowed to talk to the two, Christine Ford and a girl named Deborah Ramirez, a woman named Deborah Ramirez. Christine Ford couldn't exactly pinpoint the time of the party. 
But she ran into... Good God, it was 1982. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, but she ran... No, no in, surprise there. She ran into Mark Judge working at a Safeway a couple weeks after the party. Mm. So she can't remember what that is, but the FBI would pull the records and find out when he worked there, and then they could pinpoint when the party was. What did the White House say to the FBI? You're not allowed to pull the records. So what the hell kind of... Also, two women have... And only a week to do this, too. Yeah, only a week. But two women have come out from Yale University because Mark, or Brett Judge, or Brett Kavanaugh said <coughs> that he was a teetotaler, practically. He drank some beers, but, you know, he was a choir boy. And they, these two women came out and explicitly called him a liar. They said he's lying mm -hmm. because he was a drunk. All right? So guess what the White House said? You can't interview any of his classmates at Yale University. What the hell kind of investigation is that? Isn't this unconstitutional? Said the White House telling the no. FBI what they're supposed to no, look because, and can't do? No, they can limit, they can, they have can the, they? They have the right to limit the scope of what it is. Man, you've this got a is, nutty country. You've got this, some just it's absolutely stunning laws. This is going and, overboard. And, this is nuts. This is going overboard. Now, okay, and, and as you said, there are people on either side. There's people on Kavanaugh's side that are staunch and you know, believe him. There are people on Dr. Ford's side that are staunch and believe her. She's got a little bit more in the social media in the sense that she's got the Me Too movement. Yeah, of course. Which is very mm. huge right now in America. Yeah. The thing that I think, I didn't believe Kavanaugh. And this isn't a court case, you see. No, no, is no. It? This, is, this is just appointment to the... This is the appointment to the thing. To the... You yeah. know, but yeah. now, the reason I didn't believe Kavanaugh was he lied about his drinking. He lied about there was a poem in his yearbook that a senator asked him, a Democratic senator asked him, where they, where basically it was, if you need to get, if you need to score, you can call this girl. Okay, I mean, that, that, you know, it, it happens all across America. That this bullshit, you know. Mm. And he said, "Oh no, no, no! That was because we respected her so much." And you, you just, everybody just looked at him and go, "Really." You're saying, you're actually saying that? You know that's bullshit. He can't be on the Supreme Court, can he? Well, what I, the reason that I don't think he can be is because he was so, he disrespected the senators. He argued. What would happen if he, okay, they announced next week, you're in. He gets voted in. He's on the Supreme Court for life. What will be the reaction? Oh, the Me Too movement will go nuts. I think it, yeah. will, I think it will reflect well, just, in the November election. That. No, it will reflect in the, yeah. now, okay, let's look at this. Well, as I said before, he was very partisan about it. He's in bed with the Republicans because, mm. you know, he said the Democrats were trying to smear and attack him and Hillary Clinton was involved and they, they hate Trump and all this bullshit. So now he goes and sits on the Supreme Court. They do hate Trump. Well, they do. But you go, you go, he goes and sits on the Supreme Court. 200 Democrats are suing Trump over the Emoluments Clause, which is you can't take money from foreign entities while you're president. Okay. Trump tried to get that thrown out of court. This week, a Superior Court judge said, nope, the trial can go ahead. You know that trial is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. Is he going to be impartial about a Democratic case in front of him at the Supreme Court? I don't think so, folks. He, does, he is not qualified temperamentally in a lot of other ways to be on. All, listen to this about Kavanaugh. The ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, Never get involved in politics. They've come out against them. The only Catholic magazine in the country initially supported him because he's a Catholic. They've withdrawn their nomination for him. 
The American Bar Association had their doubts about him in 2006 when he was elected to be a federal judge, and they have come out and said, we have our reservations. It, you know, and it doesn't matter. And I, and I think that's... Whether he's guilty or not, it's just poison now. It's poison. It's definitely poison. And if he had a, an ounce of brains, yeah. he would, you know, he would withdraw himself. Yes. But he won't. And the Republicans will lambard this thing through. What, you know, and the thing is, you said the, the FBI don't have magical powers. They don't. But the thing is, it's called due process. Yes, yeah. Just let them do their job. Yep. If they come up with nothing, so be it. Yeah, but it's not a trial in court. With, so no, but they will yeah. come up with yeah. appropriate yeah. answers and responses. Hopefully. So. You know, but it is, it's toxics. It's very toxic in America right yeah. now. Hooray for the bears. Hooray for the bears. God damn it. 46 bears are happy today. Really? Yeah. I told you. Chicago? No, no. <laughs> no, no, actually, well, yeah, they won last week, so Did they'd they? be happy for a week. But in uh, Montana, it's bear hunting season. Right. They, they allow people to kill 23 bears. H. Yeah. No, no, no. Just 23 bears. Oh, yeah. you know, well, shit. You know, you go, yeah, but still, it's 23 bears. Yeah. You know? So and, and the same thing happened in, my, in Wyoming at Yellowstone National Park in Idaho. And a federal judge has come out and said, nah, we're not, we're not allowing that. Shut it down. You can't, you can't hunt bears this year. And so... Hooray for the Bears. Yeah. 46 are happy. 46 are happy. <laughs> Why the necessity? I just don't understand the drive, but I'm not that sort of person. I'm not either. Ask Don Jr. He goes out and pays big money and shoots a giraffe. Look, Daniel Boone was a man. Was a big man. A big man. He killed a bar when he was three. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you laughing at, Willis? Well, this is, you know, I mean, Trump went to the United Nations and had his big few days there mm. you know the funny thing was you know i mean to me he he started he he treated it like one of his rallies and said all this bullshit all you know so many exaggeration and lies and people started to titter and the, and the, the reason it happened was because the the interpretation they all had their headphones on and as it went through the audience yeah. they're all kind of you know and they started to, to laugh and Trump said he wasn't, you know, you could tell he was visibly embarrassed and he, and he was taken back. And he, you know, and you got to remember, these are diplomats that are used to being stoic. They just couldn't help it. It was spontaneous. Yeah. And then what, what really cracked me up was afterwards, Trump said, oh, no, they were laughing with me. We were no, having, no, no, we were having yeah, fun. Yeah, and yeah. Then you go, man, you, yeah, you're, yeah, just, sure. you're just delusional. Yeah. The other thing about the, this Trump laughter and stuff is on, on this side of the world, Mike Hosking, who loves Trump, even though he called him a buffoon in his little article. He, he, and he berated the, Nash, the the United Nations for laughing at him, saying they're a bunch of stuffed up, you know, pricks and blah, 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 and this and that, and they don't do anything. And, you know, he had a whole list of things. Of, you know, they just weren't very good. You know, they were just snobs laughing at Trump. And you go, you know, Mike, the United Nations has got a lot of problems. They don't do things well in a lot of areas. I don't think laughing at Trump is one of the top priorities of where you should bash the Sometimes United Nations. Sometimes you just can't. <laughs> laughing is an involuntary reaction. That's why it's one of the most wonderful things about being a human it, being. It, it totally was. It was just spontaneous. They just kind of, because yeah. they, they, they went, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. Why is he saying this? Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, Trump's weirdest statement of the week. Oh, this is weird. Come on, folks. Come was on. this at Wheeling, West Virginia? No, no, no. He, he, we'll get to that after this, you know, but Wheeling, West Virginia. You, you, you know. 
I mean, we, we yeah, there's a song called I'm Going to Wheeling, West Virginia. I am the man. I am the man. From Wheeling. Wheeling, West Virginia. And we talked about this way yeah. back when. But no, Trump's Trump's weirdest statement this week. This, see, this is just, you got to just stay with me, folks, in this one. Because this is weird. And even if you support Trump, you got to figure this is a little bit out there. He told a group of reporters, he had a press conference, which was very bizarre to start with, after the U.N. speech. Mm-hmm. Really weird press conference. And then in the press conference, he said the Chinese were very, very impressed with his very, very large brain. In all seriousness, he said, and you're looking at him and you're going, what? Mm. What are you talking about? Well, he's just saying that I'm extremely <laughs> intelligent and no, I appreciate he, no, it. No, he's got a big brain. Didn't say he was smart. He just said he had a... But that's what it means, <laughs> isn't it? How the hell would I know? Well... <laughs> I suppose you're right. Yeah. But now, and now, at Wheeling, West Virginia, and I could put this in as one of the weirder things. Mm-hmm. He said a lot of things. See, and you knew he was going to come back at, at West Virginia at, at his rally yeah. that he just had and go bananas. You know, he attacked the press. He attacked the Democrats. He attacked Clinton. He attacked, you know, everybody. He attacked everything. It's the best fun he has, exactly, those things. Because he didn't have any fun at the U.N. No, it no. was not fun for no. him. So you come back. But the weirdest thing he said at the... Wheeling, West Virginia thing, he calls the Democratic Party the Democrat Party now. Because he said that's that's what it was. That's what it originally was. And it was never the Democrat Party. The Democratic Party was founded in 1848. It's oldest. It's the oldest party in the United States. It's older than the Republican Party. And it's called the Democratic Party. It's always been called the Democratic Party. And he's just come out and said it's called the Democrat Party. <laughs> and what does that mean? You tell me. I got no idea. It's purposely mispronouncing somebody's <laughs> name just to stick it to them. That's where we're at. Dybvig. Yeah. Oh, well. John yeah. Dybvig. Dybug is my favorite one. Hey, here comes that Dybug guy. But come on. Far out. That's where we're at. He's just being, you know, just being a prick, just to be a prick. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, okay. And now let's more environmental news from the United States. We're yeah. off the, uh, the the Trump wagon. Yeah. The dusky gopher frog. Yeah, yeah. Now this is a little bit like this. You could probably take a leaf out of Avatar on this. Mm. The dusky gopher frog is a very small little frog. And it's got a lot of peculiarities, as you might imagine. It only kind of like breeds. It lives in low marshland in Mississippi. Mm. Only lives in Mississippi, the state of Mississippi, M I S S I S S I P P I, in case you just wanted to know. And the capital is Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and Mr. Tibbs, you know, Sidney Poitier, mm. the movie, you know, lovely, lovely movie set in Mississippi. But anyway, uh, I digress. The, the frog only breeds uh, when the marsh, when it rains and it fills up little depressions. And it lays its eggs and does its thing, and then the, and then, and then it dries up. Mm. You know, it dries up and goes away. But anyway, there's a lot of other little things about this frog. But naturally, Weyerhaeuser, a, a ginormous logging company in America, wants to come in there and develop the land. And the Environmental Protection Agency has said, no, you can't do that because the dusky gopher frog, that's his home. And he's almost extinct. I mean, they thought he was extinct for a while, yeah. but he's just hanging in there. And guess where it's gone to? Has it moved? Has no, it no, ho- no, no. Hopped I'm off. saying the case. What do you think? Oh, the- no, don't know. Supreme Court. Uh, this week, that's the first case. The Supreme the Supreme Court adjourns, re-adjourns tomorrow, or, uh, Monday, yeah. October 1st, for its its last session of the year. And they're going to hear the dusky? And the dusky gopher frog is the first up on the list. 
<laughs> so you got your Brett Kavanaugh and you got all this other bullshit, but you got the frog taking center stage. Yeah. <laughs> There's just something quite sweet about that. Exactly. That's I looked. I went. Go the frog. That's poetic. <laughs> Go the frog. It hasn't hasn't had many wins. No. Has it? No. But you're right. This this week has been a, a very toxic week in America for a lot of reasons. But as I said, the power of one senator to have a conscience and change his mind, the power of two women to confront him face to face and plead their case. Mm, it was quite dramatic. Wasn't quite it? dramatic and sincere. And the power of one senator, a Republican, getting together with a Democratic senator and coming to a bipartisan solution for a problem and it might not change a damn thing but at least mm. that is the process that the way it's supposed to work and you because you, you, we haven't seen this republicans and democrats are not getting together the way they should no bobby gentry did a cracking song which is always the way to remember how to spell mississippi <laughs> yeah what's that it's called mississippi <laughs> <laughs> and she spells it and oh that's right i really hate spelling in songs that's R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Stupid. <laughs> we know you can spell. But I think Mississippi it gets a pass because it's just such an unusual word. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. M I double S I double S I double P I. Oh, that's the way they do it. Yeah. But see, as a kid. Nice rhythm. As a kid, I mean, I knew this from elementary school. They probably don't do this anymore. I needed Bobby Gentry to help me. Yeah, but in elementary school, M I S S I S S I P P I. I mean, that's just something you know. We all knew that Aretha Franklin could spell respect. And if you're in a foxhole and, you know, behind the lines in Germany, and they ask you to spell Mississippi and you can't, you're going to get shot. Right. <laughs> or if you can't speak Algonquin. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, who won the World Series in 1933? Anyway, okay. Thank you very much, John. Nice stuff. Lovely to see you again. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, good to be back. Nice to be back. Gentry, no confusion now on the spelling. After the commercial break, part one in a series counting down the last days of World War One, with military historian Glenn Harper. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Going over the top while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists, and hope, with furtive eyes and grappling fists, flounders in the mud. Oh, Jesus, make it stop. Undoubtedly, you could say the most momentous moment in the 20th century. It resonated and affected all the rest of the 20th century, and you can even think what's happening in Syria today in some ways, or in the Middle East in general. The background of it begins with what happened in World War One and the Treaty of Versailles. November the 11th at 11 o'clock, 1918. But what was happening on the Western Front each of those weeks leading up to the signing of the Treaty of Versailles to tell us about the death throes of World War One, New Zealand's, I think, most renowned 
military historian on this particular subject is Glyn Harper. Glyn, you're the Massey Project Manager of the Centenary History of New Zealand and the First World War and author of many books as well, In the Face of the Enemy, Dark Journey as well. They're all available. So, Glyn, I really do appreciate you walking us through this. It's a pleasure, Graham. Let's go for a bit of background context on how the conflict evolved in 1918 leading up to September the 30th. 1918 was an exceptionally busy year for the British Expeditionary Force, of which New Zealand was a part, and because of that, a really, really busy year for New Zealand as well. In fact, they fought more military actions in 1918 than any other year, and uh, as a result of that, the casualties were heaviest that year. Um, The year hadn't begun well for the British Expeditionary Force. They were short of numbers. They had been forced to take over a larger section of the line, and um, they were really going through a, a massive reorganisation when the Germans launched the largest offensive of the war on March the 21st, the Michael Offensive or the Kaiserschlag, and um, that caught the um, Allies and particularly the British and French really by surprise and was one of the most successful attacks of the war and it, uh, it nearly split two British armies and forced them back some 40 miles, um, so this is now a war of manoeuvre and momentum, and there were uh, several large gaps opened up in the lines of which uh, had to be sealed and the New Zealanders along with a lot of other um, divisions in reserve were rushed south to plug those gaps and there is hard fighting in the second battle of the Somme in 1918. Um, The Germans followed up with several other offensive operations and one after the other but by July they've really run out of steam. They've lost over a a million men fighting these offensive actions. Their army is being decimated by the influenza uh, pandemic which is starting to happen around this time and the Allies have held firm and in August 1918 they actually go on the offensive and it's known as the 100 days and that 100 days doesn't stop until the armistice and it starts from the 8th of August 1918 which uh, Ludendorff called the black day of the German army with a, an attack by 4th army uh, with uh, the Canadians and Australians out to the front and uh, British units on their, on their flanks and they actually uh, secure more ground in a single day than any other day of the war uh, on the 8th of August 1918. Very, very successful. They inflict 27,000 casualties, advance eight miles, and the Germans are really thrown backward. They managed to uh, stop any further penetration by the 12th of August, but then, then the Allies who are now under a unified commander. They attack elsewhere and they carry out several other offensives north and to the south. There's the Battle of Albert, Battle of Bay Palm, and of course the New Zealanders are intimately involved in the capture of Bay Palm at the end of August. And in September, you know, it's more of the same. Uh, the, the unified commander, Foch, gives the order everyone into battle and September is an exceptionally busy month. There are attacks by the US First Army under Pershing's command and they pinch out a huge salient down south. The British Fourth and Third Armies come back into the uh, action and they push the Germans back onto their Hindenburg line. Then there are several other battles around Argonne and on the 27th there is an attack by the Canadian Corps who actually managed to breach the Hindenburg line which is this massive of defensive position the Germans have been building since the end of 1916. It's really their last big line of defence and the Canadians smash it open in the centre and later on the New Zealanders 
as part of the third division and at the end of September are also brought back into the action and they actually attack a part of the Hindenburg line and get through it as well. So the Germans are really in disarray from August and September. Both of those months have been black months for them, so much so that at the end of September they are really thinking and, and the first thoughts and, and actions are taken towards establishing an armistice because they realise they can't go on like this. Right. It's stalemate was the norm for such a long time, but this thrust and parry, yep. it was like that last-ditch effort, as yep. it turned out, from the Germans didn't work and finally expended them and now uh, they're starting to break. Yeah, the Allies strike, strike back. Yeah, the, you're quite right. The Western Front, which is the critical theatre of war in, in the First World War, is really characterised by stalemate and trench warfare for three long years. And then all of a sudden in 1918, that nature of the war changes, and it's a war of manoeuvre and momentum and finally decision. And the Germans have the upper hand at the start of, the, of 1918, but by July they've really run out of steam and run out of men, so much so they actually had to call up the, the youth of 1919, so they're now putting 17 and 18 year old boys into the into the front line because they're starting to run out of soldiers. But then the Allies go on to, onto the attack, and it's unrelenting. It's I, I liken this to a, a boxing analogy. What what they've tried to do up to date is to look for a single knockout blow. That's what they're trying to do at the Somme and at Third Ypres and Messines and so forth. But what they're doing now is raining a flurry of blows upon the Germans, and they're coming in all directions, and it's constant and unrelenting and, and with massive force, and really the Germans have no have no way to respond to that. One, they're running out of resources and soldiers, and two, the, uh, the Allies are uh, doing their actions coordinated, and the Americans are getting into it, and the Americans are fresh with these large divisions on the Western Front, and they're really just getting warmed up. Mm. And Russia, we may as well say, they're out of this, They've got their own problems at home now. Absolutely, yeah. They've been out of the war since the end of 1917. Uh, the Germans actually win on the Eastern Front, and um, and in March 1918 they impose a very draconian peace settlement upon the Russians at the Treaty of. Brest-Litovsk, which strips Russia of so much resources and people, and they're basically fighting a, their own civil war in 1918. The, the, the Russians, between the whites and the red Russians, and the, effectively they've been out of the war since the start of 1918. Technological factors. Uh, the mm -hmm. tank came in very late, and is that one of the reasons where on September the 30th there is more movement? Um, it's certainly a factor, but it's it's not a a telling factor. Um, what uh, what is more important is the use of artillery and the, the scientific use of artillery and using it in ma in mass concentration and plenty of uh, ammunition on hand, but also using it to support advancing infantry. The tank has come ahead in leaps and bounds. It was first appeared on the Western Front in September 1916, but was very slow and prone to breakdown. Um, on the 8th of August, when the Canadians and Australians carry out that magnificent attack around Amiens, they have 500 tanks in support, and they're very, very useful, but they are still quite vulnerable, so that by the 12th of, uh, of August, they've only got, this four days later, they've only got six left that are still running, so they have to uh, reconstitute and bring in more tanks, and tanks are certainly very, very useful, but they're not war winners. Uh, we're up to the Mark V version of the tank, which is reliable and much faster than the Mark one version it can go eight miles an hour which uh, doesn't sound very fast but that was the fastest at the time and quite useful 
prone to uh, attrition uh, very, very quickly. Uh, really, the war-winning weapon in the, on the Western Front in 1918 is this massive concentration of artillery, but providing really solid fire support for advancing infantry through creeping barrages, standing barrages, counter-battery fire, taking out all the Germans' own artillery. On the 8th of August, for example, prior to the attack, the, the, uh, the British gunners had actually pinpointed uh, where all the German guns were and took out 95% of them before the infantry went forward. That kind of support is invaluable and it's absolutely necessary if you're going to win in these tactical encounters. New Zealanders in action on September the 30th. Where were yep. our men? Well, they, they had had a big stoush in August at a place called Bayporm, which uh, they call Bloody Bayporm, and they'd actually suffered quite a bit. They're put into the line in early September, and they capture a number of villages at Havrincourt and, and other places. They come a bit of a, a cropper at a place called Trescolt Spur, which um, they capture but then lose, so they're rested for the middle part of uh, September. But they come back into the action on the 29th and fight around the Canal de Nord in the Battle of the Canal de Nord, and they actually uh, capture part of the Hindenburg line, they capture part of the Scheldt Canal as well, and they capture the village of Crevacore, so that uh, they've actually punched their way through the Hindenburg line as oh, well. Is that in Bel- are those features in Belgium? No, they're, in, they're clo- very close to Belgium, but they're in northern France. Ah, oh my word, how little moved for so long. Absolutely. I mean, uh, they've been stuck around that region for, for, you know, three or four years, but now they're actually moving. But when you're talking moving, you're talking about advances of eight miles, three miles, four miles and so forth, which are quite significant in terms of movement on the Western Front. But they are on the move in September 1918, and they're constantly pushing the Germans back, and they've punched through their main defensive line, the Hindenburg Line, and the Germans really have very little answer. And by the end of September, they are really seriously contemplating chucking it in, requesting an armistice, which they do in early October. At home in Germany, they're starving too. The war has bled them dry, hasn't it? Absolutely, and one of the unknown and, I guess, uh, unsung aspects of the um, war is this British blockade, which was uh, put around Germany uh, right from the start of the war, which uh, denied any exports and imports, uh, you know, leaving the country and getting into the country. And by 1918, that is seriously biting against the German people. It's seriously damaging them. There's been crop failures. There's little food getting in. The people of Germany are starving, and, and this war will lead to a, a revolution happening in, in early November, which the army then decides it needs to go back and put down. It does seem like a competition, a brutal, horrid competition for who can put up with most the longest. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly an attritional struggle, um, no doubt about that. Um, and the reality is it was the Allies with their deeper pockets, you know, their 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 better economy, their better organisation, the fact they could put more soldiers in the field, that's what told in the end the Germans just couldn't outlast the Allies in terms of resources and manpower that they could they could put into this critical theatre of war. Were there people fighting on September the thirtieth, nineteen eighteen, that had survived the Gallipoli campaign? 
Yes, there were. There weren't a lot of them because the Gallipoli campaign had taken its toll and uh, had burnt out a lot of uh, a lot of soldiers. But absolutely, there were veterans from Gallipoli still fighting on the Western Front in, at the end of September 1918, including a significant number of the senior NCOs and officers. Oh, my word. I'm just thinking of the ordinary fighting soldier. No fun for the officers either. But to put up, to get through all of that, to be fighting... Yep. Uh, yeah. still on this brutal yeah. battlefield after all that. It's, uh, it, I mean, I think it's, we, we really can't understand what these, what these men went through, uh, what they suffered, and I guess the long-term damage that it had on their, on their physical well-being but also on their psychological well-being. Um, it's no wonder they couldn't talk about it to, to people who hadn't been there when they, when they came back. Um, mm. It was just, just something that, that, you know, you really can't understand unless you've lived through it, I think. So close, but so far for many of them too. I imagine there would have been soldiers on the Western Front that had survived, miraculously, I don't know, uh, uh, Gallipoli, but, you know, there were survivors there still fighting on the Western Front. And I suppose it doesn't matter really if you die on day one or the last day. It's still death, but it has that kind of frisson of, oh, no, there would yeah. be people that had fought in Gallipoli in that campaign right through the Western Front and were to die between September the 30th and November the 11th. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. I, I always think of that last battle, you know, where we captured the town of Lekenwar, um in, in northern France. Um, I mean, it's a magnificent feat of arms, but it still cost the lives of 130 New Zealanders in the very last days of the war. And, and I think that's really poignant because it's so close to the end. And also, something we shouldn't forget too is that soldiers were still dying after the, the guns had stopped firing. They were dying from, from their wounds, but they're also dying from this influenza pandemic. It just seems so unfair to go through so much and then, uh, you know, then die or be killed, you know, um, when it was so close to the end. It just makes it a tragedy. It just drives home, I think, the extent of the tragedy. Have you got any handle on the stats? Approximately will do. How many casualties there would be between September the 30th, 1918 and Armistice on the 11th of November? An armistice. Oh, well, you, you want the New Zealand stats or the or the general stats? I'll do it. Knock yourself out. No, well, well, we're still talking about you know thousands of soldiers being killed and wounded in those last months of the war. And if we look at just the battle for the Canal du Nord, uh, which is breaking through the Hindenburg Line uh, over over three days, say from 27th September to uh, 27th to 29th September, you're talking about just over 800 New Zealand casualties, of which 150 are killed. And there are several more actions like that between September and and, and uh, the end of the war. And as I say. Even at Lekenwar, we have 130 New Zealand soldiers killed and around about another six, 700 wounded. So, uh, you know, the, even when we're winning and when things are going really, really well, we are suffering heavy casualties because there was no such thing as a cheap victory on the Western Front. Yeah, OK. Perhaps a personalised anecdote from the day? Sure. Sure. Well, I thought I, I, you asked me about this um, a while ago, and I thought I'd actually give a, a diary reading of a of a guy, uh, James Nimmo, who was uh, in the fighting at the end of September, and he's actually writes a letter from uh, he, he heads it uh, written from an ex Fritz dugout. He's actually in the Hindenburg line, uh, which they've occupied and kicked the Germans out, and they're chasing them a fair way back. And he just can't believe how how sophisticated the German defences are, nor how 
how easily they've fallen. So if I could, if I can, if you bear with me for a bit, I'll read an extract from a from a letter he wrote home. If that's all right. Sure. Okay, he says this. This is James Nimmo writing to his family. There was plenty of wire back in the old German Hindenburg line. We sampled a bit of it on our way up last time. Old Jerry had dugouts galore, made to last for years too, 50 or 60 feet below the ground, and each one enough to hold 20 or 30 men. In some places they're all connected and a whole company could have lived in them. They were very nice for us, I can tell you. As for wire, well, he had miles of it, and it's a marvel to me how he was driven out of it so easily. I don't think he ever expected to lose it. He appeared to have no more prepared positions behind us for a good few miles at any rate, so he evidently didn't expect to lose this position. And so he's just commenting on on what they've done and what they've seized and how well prepared these German positions were, but they have captured them relatively easily at the end of at, at the end of September 1918. They are finally breaking. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is this is this is the end, but it still has some way to go. Yeah, as you say, no cheap victory. Uh, still on the Western Front. All right, it's not overstating it, is it? The effect that World War One and how the Treaty of Versailles was built and worded, how it affected the rest of the 20th century and still today. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the one of the pivotal events of the 20th century. It sets up the rest of the 20th century. There are direct connections to the Second World War, and we're still living with the legacy of the First World War, particularly with the collapse of empires and, and especially the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which uh, you know the fallout from that we still live with to this day. Yeah, have a look at a map of the Middle East, Mesopotamian area. All those lines were drawn out of World mm. War One. Yep, absolutely, um, and still, still massive problems associated with them as well. But you know, I mean, this is this is a, a an event which shapes the world, and it's an event which shapes New Zealand too. And uh, and we need to be aware of it. And I think we still need to know a lot more about our role in the First World War. Mm. And of course, Nazi Germany, on the face of it, may seem like uh, a more villainous outfit, but mm. the cruelty of the Treaty of Versailles towards Germany created a feeling for vengeance from the German people, which they found. Uh, yes, the, yeah. Well, the peace treaty unfortunately uh, didn't create uh, lasting peace as it, as it was hoped. It had a large number of flaws in it. Although I think the peacemakers at their time did their best and yeah. came up with a compromise peace that actually pleased nobody. Um, and unfortunately, as as we know, uh, the First World War was not going to be the war to end all wars. Un- unfortunately, um, and th- within uh, de- within t- two decades, we're back fighting again. Glenn Harper, thank you very much. Uh, War Studies at Massey University in Palmerston North, author of many books on this subject. And next Sunday, we will find out in some detail again what happened on that day in World War I, the Great War, and leading all the way up to that historic signing of the Treaty of Versailles when almost, almost, almost Sassoon's plea, Jesus, make it stop, actually happened. Glenn Harper, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Graham. Oh, Jesus, make it stop.